Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount uh, by finishing our look at the sixth and final antithesis, as it is called by many commentators. Remember, that's there are six of these in chapter five in uh, Matthew, in which Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, or something to that effect, where he contrasts the way the scribes and Pharisees were teaching in his day with what they should have been saying from the Old Testament if they were teaching correctly. And so what we've seen so far, and what's true of this sixth and final antithesis, is that they usually taught part of what Scripture said and then left some things out. In this case, they not only left something out, they added something as a command that really wasn't found in the Old Testament Scriptures that they had. And so Jesus is correcting this. And you'll remember last week, we only got through half of this rather lengthy sermon that had to come in two parts. And we looked at the false teaching of the Jewish leaders and what they took away. The words, as yourself, were conveniently uh, left out of the command to love your neighbor. And then they added, and hate your enemies. And then they had a very broad definition, as we saw, for enemies. Be just about anyone you didn't like, and certainly anyone who wasn't Jewish uh, from their point of view. And then we started to look at the true teaching of Jesus, and we compared uh, Luke 6, 27 and 28, because some of your translations had a little bit different uh, reading of the text. Uh, it left out a couple of clauses that are in the New King James Version, which it, it, it's a version that actually in this case follows the majority of Greek manuscripts, but there are some older manuscripts that leave out a couple of these clauses. And so we looked over and compared to Luke chapter 6 and saw that these clauses do reflect the teaching of Jesus. Uh, And uh, so we're going to go ahead and follow them in my teaching this morning. So if you've got a different translation than the New King James Version, which I'm using, hopefully you'll have what you need on your notes here to follow along. And you can always go over to look at the passage in Luke 6, which I don't believe is Luke's rendition of this same Sermon on the Mount. I think Jesus taught the, we know from other passages and other teachings too, he taught similar or almost identical teachings, sometimes with slight changes, on different occasions. And he did that with the Sermon on the Mount as well. And we have another version of a similar teaching in Luke chapter 6. And so we looked at that and also saw that the Old Testament really did indicate that you're supposed to love your enemies, and that when Jesus says then, love your enemies, he wasn't really saying anything new. He was saying something they ought to have known if they were the experts in the Old Testament law that they claimed to be, these scribes and Pharisees. And so we left off with that. Uh, Jesus telling us what the Old Testament really says, and then I showed you that it really said that and over the last couple of weeks, actually. And so now we're ready to pick up with sub-point two and remain point two today, where Jesus gives some examples of his teaching in action. So hopefully that kind of brings you up to speed here, especially if you haven't been here uh, for the last week or two. Uh, hopefully your mind is where it needs to be now. Uh, and again, remember last week we saw the scribes and, and Pharisees had had been distorting scripture both by taking away and adding to, in this case, what it actually taught. And we'll be reminded 
of this as we read the passage, beginning in verse 43, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Of course, we're going to begin our, our examination of the text today with verse 44, the second part of verse 44, actually. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and saints reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And some of you will have heathen or Gentiles there. We'll get to that later. It's another textual difference that doesn't really make a difference in the end, as we'll see. And then he says, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And, of course, in this context, he's talking about loving in the same way that our Heavenly Father loves, right? Okay. Hopefully our minds are starting to click with the text now. But before we get into it, as always, I feel a desperate need to pray. So let's do that. Holy Father, I can't imagine teaching your word without first calling upon you for the grace and the filling of your spirit necessary to understand it properly and to proclaim it faithfully. I need to be a good hearer of your word, and so does everyone else here today. And those of us who know you, we know that that only comes through the filling of your spirit, through the illuminating work of your spirit in our hearts, because we know that we couldn't see or enter the kingdom unless we'd first been born from above, born of the Spirit. And we know that we couldn't understand the gospel unless your Holy Spirit first opened our eyes that we might see, gave us ears to hear what you had to say to us through the gospel. And so we come still dependent on you in every way. And we ask that you would fill us anew with your Spirit that we might understand what our Lord Jesus would have us to understand today. And as a result, that we might become more like him, that we might magnify him, that your glory might be seen in us. We pray these things for your glory and for our good, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John Stott, who's been one of the commentators who's helped me a lot, actually, in my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, has written this. Our neighbor in the vocabulary of God includes our enemy. What constitutes him our neighbor is simply that he is a fallen human being in need, whose need we know are in it and are in, excuse me, a position in some measure to relieve. What then is our duty to our neighbor? Whether he be friend or foe, we are to love him. Moreover, if we add the clauses in Luke's account of the sermon, which we are doing, because they're in my account of the sermon as well, if we add the clauses in Luke's account of the sermon, our love for him will be expressed in our deeds, our words, and our prayers. And we'll see that is definitely true. Again, you'll recall from Last week's teaching, 
we are including these clauses found in Luke's account. Clauses, as I've already said, which are in the majority of the Greek manuscripts and I think are rightly included in the New King James Version. But as I pointed out last week, if you have a different version, you haven't lost Jesus' teaching. He said these words in Luke's account. So we're not, we're not at, the New King James isn't adding something to Jesus' teaching that wasn't, he never taught. And your translations are not taking away something, so we'll, we lost it forever, right? We still have the words of Jesus, and we're going to look at them today. And I thank God that we still have them. Now we're at this point in our outline where Jesus has said we're to love our enemies, and now he's going to give some examples of his teaching in action. And the first thing that he says is bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Now, we don't walk around blessing and cursing people very often in our culture today, um, but they did that a fair amount (laughs) in Jesus' day, and some people still do it today, especially those who have read the Bible quite a bit and understand what blessing and cursing is all about. But in those days, it was a somewhat common thing, if you didn't like someone, to pronounce a curse on that person. Um, And Jesus says we're to bless those who curse us. In our day and age, it would just be that they wish hateful things on us, right? And we see in this case that Jesus illustrates demonstrating love for enemies through our words. They may say hateful words to us. We say loving words back to them. That's the way we would translate it into our day, right? We say words that wish them the very best from God. All his blessings. While they say things hateful to us. Of course, in those days, as I said, it was somewhat common to pronounce a curse on one's enemies. And we've just seen that they were teaching you should hate your enemies. So that would encourage people to curse their enemies, right? Um, But Jesus tells us that anyone who is a part of the kingdom of heaven in this larger context of the Sermon on the Mount, that's who he's talking to, those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, They won't respond in this way. Instead, a disciple of Jesus will pronounce a blessing upon the enemy that curses him. That is, he will desire and pronounce a desire for God to be gracious to this person. And a good example of such a blessing in Scripture would be from number 6, 24 through 26. And this is a blessing that the priests were taught to pronounce upon the people. Here's that blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So if someone says something hateful to us in our daily lives, right, particularly because of our, our faith in Christ and our testimony, our witness for Christ, our response should be something like, you know, I just pray that God will bless you in every way and that you will come to know just how much he loves you. In fact, I pray that you will you'll come to know. My hope for you is that you will come to know that Jesus loved you so much he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and conquered death on your behalf. It is my fondest wish for you that you will have all the peace that comes from the free gift of salvation, that you will know the forgiving grace of God, that you will one day look forward to a resurrection where you can be in heaven forever with Christ. That's what I want for you. 
See, our response will be the gospel. <laughs> That's the blessing we have to share to those who curse us, who are despise us. We love them with our words, and what better word than to tell the old, old story right, of salvation? The question, I guess, is, could you and I say such a thing to someone who hates us? And, and more importantly than that, could we say it and mean it in our hearts when we say it? Because I don't think Jesus is saying to us, go through the perfunctory motions of pronouncing a blessing. And you've sort of legalistically, you've done your job not to hate your enemy. No, you're supposed to do it out of love for your enemy. That's the whole point here. Well, I guess I'll play that God blesses you is not the response. We should be coming from a heart of actual love. As those who have been forgiven by the grace of God and who know we know better than that person who's cursing us or hating us. And that we only have the blessing we have because of God's grace and not because of anything we deserve. We will have sympathy for their plight because we too are sinners, although saved by grace. And we will want them to have the same thing that we have. That's the attitude we should have, I think. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to love other people when we say these things. Well, Jesus said to say it, so I guess I have to, is not what he's after here. That scribe and Pharisee righteousness. And remember, the whole point here is that we have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, he introduced all these antitheses in verse 20 by saying, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. They were good at going through the motions and not meaning it. That's not what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to love them, as we'll see, like our Heavenly Father does. He goes on to say in the next part of verse 44, in his next example, do good to those who hate you. Now here Jesus illustrates demonstrating love for our enemies through our actions It's one thing to say nice things, loving things, blessings upon someone. It's another thing to follow through with loving actions. Sometimes we can say things and it doesn't cost us too much. Sometimes it costs us dearly to speak up and say the truth. Sometimes we can say the truth and it doesn't cost us too much, but it might cost us quite a bit to put that love in action, to want to be a part of God's means of blessing that person and not just saying it or praying for it, but doing it, something about it. And we have to also keep in mind that although we may avoid doing any harm to the person who hates us, perhaps choosing simply to ignore that person altogether, and thus obey Jesus' earlier command, right, not to take vengeance, as we saw in verses 38 through 41, here Jesus is saying even that is not enough. Even that is not enough, that, that you refuse to take vengeance and do something hateful back is not enough. You've got to do something good. That's the extra mile kind of thinking he was talking about in the preceding context, right? Going the extra mile. 
we need to actively seek to do good to the person who hates us. And, and once again, we have to do it out of heart of love. That's what we're being called to. Not just going through the motions because we have to, but because we really want to share the love of Christ with that person. We want them to experience the love of God that we have received. But we need to constantly remember in this regard that we ourselves were once enemies of God, yet he demonstrated his love for us through his actions when he gave his son for us. Paul reminds us of this in his epistle to the Romans when he writes in Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, that is, because of Jesus' death on the cross, where he took our sin upon himself, as we sang about this morning, he became sin for us. Through that happy exchange, his righteousness gets credited to us, credited to our account, reckoned to us. And that's the basis upon which God looks at us and says, righteous. He declares us righteous because of the imputed, reckoned righteousness of Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says we've now been justified by his blood. And he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The future wrath that awaits sinners doesn't await us. We already know what the final verdict on Judgment Day is going to be. Righteous. We've already heard it. By God's grace. So we don't have to fear wrath. Why? For even when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We, we must never forget that our enemies are first and foremost God's enemies. We, we get short-sighted sometimes. And we think... It, only in personal terms, personal to us, right, when we're mistreated. We think only of our relationship with that person and what that person has done to us, and we forget that that person has a broken relationship with God like we once had. There's never just two people in any relationship, is what I'm saying. God is always there. And everybody has a relationship with him, either a bad one or a good one, right? either a broken relationship or a mended relationship through the work of reconciliation, as Paul has said. And that's the mindset that we need to keep in our heads when we think about people who hurt us. Their real problem isn't that they're my enemy or your enemy. Their real problem is that they're God's enemy. And we were once his enemies. And we know the way into a right relationship with him. And out of love, we're supposed to share that gospel with them. God has given us his work of helping to reconcile these enemies to him, just as we have been reconciled to him. And this is ultimately why we bless them and do them good. We want to share God's love with them. The love that's been shared with us, we want to share with them. We love God because he first loved us. They need to hear 
that he first loved them. And they can love him back through Jesus Christ. Once again, we just we have to, we have to mean it. The next example he gives is in the next part of verse forty-four in the New King James, and they're switched around, but they're they're in the Luke six passage as well. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now we've seen here that it's not enough merely to speak words of love to our enemies. We must also demonstrate love through our actions. But now we see that even that is not enough. We must also entreat such things for them from our Heavenly Father. If we, are re- if we really love them when we share blessing with them, if we, ultimately the gospel, if we really love them when we seek to do them good as witnesses for Christ, then we'll constantly be praying for them as well. We won't leave it just at that. When you really love somebody, it's not for a moment that passes. Which, which of us, who of us would feel that we've been loved if somebody only ever showed us love for one moment and then forgot about us? Would we feel that that person loved us? I don't think so. Well, one of the best ways not to forget that we need to keep loving someone is to be praying for them. So it's not surprising that Jesus tells us to pray for those people. We must ask God to bring about the blessing that we have pronounced for them. And for him to work even more good for them than our our own actions could ever accomplish. Once again, we have to mean it. Because once again, after all, we're doing all of this out of our love for them. This seems impossible, doesn't it? Well, with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And though most of us in this room have managed to genuinely love someone who doesn't love us, and maybe we've been surprised by that. How did I, how did I love that person? Well, because God is working in my heart and changing me, that's how. The Holy Spirit is working in my heart giving me a heart of love for others. I say one of the best fruits of the Holy Spirit, one of the best ways of seeing the genuine work of the Spirit in your heart is that you're actually starting to love other people. The way Jesus says to. Because human beings just don't do that. And if you think that most human beings or any human being really is good at doing this all the time, you haven't lived on this planet very long. (laughs) You must be a newcomer, there must be aliens, and you must be one of them, if you think that. No, this, this has to come from the grace of God, this kind of love. If we struggle to feel love for people as we should, and we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, we can start by doing loving things and praying that God will help us, our feelings to get where they should be. As D.A. Carson reminds us in his commentary, one manifestation of love for enemies will be in prayer. Praying for an enemy and loving him will prove mutually reinforcing. The more love, the more prayer, and the more prayer, the more love. That's right. John Stott agrees when he writes this. 
If intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him, and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him, and we shall find our love break first into bud, then into blossom. Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron sparks were being, spikes excuse me, were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think he's right about that. We think that Jesus said that once. The Greek indicates he probably said it over and over again so that they could continually hear him say it as they were putting him on the cross. Stott goes on to say, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? That hit me pretty close to home. (laughs) Stott has reminded us of our Father's love in giving his own son for us, and it's to the Father's example that Jesus turns next in our text, where we see in our third sub-point here that Jesus stresses the importance of being like our Heavenly Father. Why are we to love this way? Why are we to love other people in a way that seems virtually impossible for us to do? It can only happen through the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God to love this way. That, he says, you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, Our Lord is not saying that we somehow become God's children by being loving. He's not saying that. He's really just saying in another way what he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, such as when he said in verse 9 of chapter 5, in what we call the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, people will see we're God's children through how we live and act. That if he's our heavenly father, right, there should be a family resemblance with his children, adopted children in this case. We should seek to be like him. Jesus said in verse 16, and this has been a key verse that we keep going back to in our study. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So when he says, here, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, he means it in the ways he said it before. Really, so that they'll see whose children you really are, and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. They'll want to know him. That's the hope we have. That's why we're loving this way. We want others to know our Heavenly Father as we do. We want them to know his love as we know it. So again, Jesus insists that those of us who are in the kingdom of heaven, we must bear a family resemblance to our heavenly father. In fact, it is this family resemblance that proves to the world whose sons we really are, as we've seen. As D.A. Carson once again helpfully observes, to be persecuted because of righteousness is to align oneself with the prophets. We saw that in verse 12 of chapter 5. 
But to bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align oneself with the character of God. Alfred Plummer put it this way, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. He's on the right track, isn't he? Jesus goes on to illustrate more clearly what he means when he says, further in verse 45, for he makes, referring to our heavenly father, our father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is constantly showing love to every human being on the planet in all kinds of ways, and Jesus has listed two here. This verse actually refers to what Reformed theologians have often called common grace. It's not saving grace, right? Because it doesn't necessarily lead to salvation for all those who experience it, but it's grace nonetheless. It is grace that is showered upon all indiscriminately. It is grace because no sinner deserves the a sinner, excuse me, deserves the good that comes from the rain and the sunshine. Sinners deserve to be in hell, our Lord Jesus teaches us. They don't deserve the extra days that God gives them. So it's grace because no sinner deserves it. These things that enable life to continue in a world, once again, that deserves nothing but God's judgment and the most horrific deaths. And sometimes God does show his judgment. But I would put to you that I know of no instance in which God judges people where he hasn't manifested first that he deserves it or that they deserve it. It's this kind of gracious love, the very love of God the Father himself that we must have for others, even those who hate us. Because we remember, it's really God they hate. It's really his enemies that they are. And he's loving them all the time. And so what Jesus is saying here is, when I'm calling on you to love your enemies, I'm calling on you to do what your father is always doing. Be like him. Join in what he's doing. Jesus will return to this essentially same point in verse 48. So I'm going to jump ahead to verse 48. We're going to spend a little time on this because this verse gets misunderstood sometimes. Um, We're just going to look at it now because, again, it sort of repeats the same idea of being like your father. In verse 48, he says, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. This command is actually similar to the command given to Israel in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.2, when when God says, Speak to the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. As a matter of fact, Jesus actually gives pretty much the exact form of the Septuagint reading, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which... You all know they commonly used as their Bible in the first century. Jesus most often quoted from this version of the Bible. And so did the apostles. The form of this is almost exactly like the Greek text of you shall be holy, for 
for I the, Lord, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Only Jesus switches out the word holy to the word perfect. Why does Jesus emphasize that his followers must be perfect? Of course, to be holy like God is holy is to be perfectly holy. It's to be perfect, right? But what does Jesus mean by perfect? Does he really expect us to be exactly like God? Well, Jesus knows there's all kinds of ways we can't be exactly like God. It was, we were reminded this morning in the opening prayer, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. We can't be that. We can't be perfectly powerful as God is perfectly powerful. It's impossible. He's infinite and we're finite. We can never be omniscient. We can never know all things. We can't be perfect in knowing like God is perfect in knowing. Well, in the context, what's he talking about? He's talking about loving. That there are incommunicable attributes of God, like omniscience and omnipotence, omnipresence. We can't experience those things. But there, then there are what theologians call communicable attributes of God. We can share in those things. Love being the primary one. So when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, in the context, he means love in the same perfect way that your heavenly Father loves. That must be what he means. So there's a number of things I I would say in order to get a handle on what he means here by being perfect. I've, I've gotten us going. Hopefully these other observations will help. First, remember that Jesus has already described the blessed as those who are poor in spirit back in verse 3 in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. That that poor in spirit refers to those who continually see their own inadequacy. And he's already said that we will continually hunger and thirst for righteousness in this life, in verse 6. And that assumes that we, we will not be fully and thus perfectly righteous in this life. In this life, we're constantly seeking more perfect righteousness, right? To be more righteous. We'll actually see when we get later into chapter 6, when Jesus teaches us how to pray every day, one of the things he teaches us to pray for, later on in chapter 6, verse 12, is God's daily forgiveness. So Jesus is assuming, in the larger context, that those who are in the kingdom who are true children of God, will always be striving for greater righteousness and will daily need to be forgiven. So what's the perfect mean here? Well, it certainly is our desire to strive to be as loving as God is in all the ways that he is. But Jesus doesn't assume we'll achieve it in this life. Clearly, from the context, he assumes every day we're going to fail in some ways and need to be forgiven, but we need to be constantly pursuing it every day. That's in the context what he means. So what he means by perfect, well, he doesn't assume we're going to achieve it in this life, but he does set it as the standard to which we strive. And sometimes we'll hit it. Maybe not consistently, but there are moments in our lives where we, we really will, through the power of the Spirit, love even as the Father loves. 
and then we'll wish we'd done it every day before and that we could continually do it after. <laughs> and we'll keep striving to do it again, right? There may, there'll be moments of victory, and maybe plenty of them. We'll probably always, even our most perfect, will probably fall short to some extent, right? So that's the first thing to remember. This larger context sort of puts this word perfect in a particular light. Remember also, secondly, that Jesus began the series of six antitheses with the warning in verse 20 that we've already seen, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen in each of the antitheses that we've looked at so far, and up to this final one here, that Jesus showed that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees always managed to leave something out. It was never perfect. It was never complete. It always left something out. Well, as long as I'm not murdering my brother, I'm doing okay. It doesn't matter that I hate him. That sort of thinking. Or, well, I know God says love your neighbor, but as yourself, but come on. I don't love anybody like I love myself. That's too hard. I love your neighbor and hate your enemies. They always distort the true teaching of Scripture in order to lessen the demands of righteousness and then say, look, I'm righteous because I met these lower demands. Jesus is saying, don't be that way. And don't love like that. That's not real love. That's not love at all. Now, you've got to be like your heavenly father in the way you love, not like the Pharisees in the way they pretend to. So this idea of perfect is a more complete love that's beyond our capabilities without God's gracious help. A third, we've seen in the more immediate context that the Jewish leaders left out that key emphasis that I already pointed to and they added to. The fourth thing is even more than this, uh, we've discovered that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, as I've already alluded to, uh, really was focused on external conformity. And it wasn't from the heart. And, and in that way, it wasn't, it, it wasn't just that they left certain things out so it can make it easier so that they could pat themselves on the back and say, what a good boy am I. I can call myself righteous in the, you know, in the eyes of other people. It's that it wasn't from the heart. They didn't mean it. It wasn't sincere. Jesus constantly called them hypocrites for that reason. He was incomplete in that way. And that's why I kept stressing before, Jesus wants us to mean it. The kind of love he's talking about is a perfect kind of love. Finally, fifthly, the very meaning of the Greek word translated perfect here, teleos, and it's translated perfect in most other versions. And the reason it's translated perfect here is because it's being used of God, right? But the word can mean perfect in the, mean perfect in the sense of complete. In many passages in the New Testament, it's, it's translated as mature. When Paul talks about Christians who are mature, he uses this word. He doesn't mean absolutely perfect. He knows that comes in the resurrection, where that's when we have moral perfection, right? But we can attain a level of 
completeness or maturity, right, in this life. And so this word has some elasticity to it, is what I'm saying here. When we apply it to God, we mean perfect in one way. When we apply it to us striving to be like God, (laughs) we mean a derived perfection at best, if we attain it, that God gives us. He's perfect in and of himself. If we attain any perfect love, it's because he does it in us. So there's always going to be distinction there. I got into all this to say, uh, some people, they misunderstand this, and they think we can actually attain moral perfection in this life. And I don't think that Jesus means that. I think in the context of what he's talking about is that as you seek to be like your heavenly father, you will love in a fullness, with a fullness and a completeness and a sincerity that those scribes and Pharisees try to mimic but can never produce. They always fall short. We won't settle for that. Our standard isn't what's the best Pharisee like and I'll try to be like him. Our standard is what is our Heavenly Father like. And I'm ever reaching for that standard. So, we jumped ahead and addressed, I hope helpfully, (laughs) verse 48. I've been wrestling with this text. Uh, Let's get back now to the progression of Jesus' thought in verse 46, or see our fourth sub-point here. Jesus stresses the importance of not being like the heathen. In verse 46, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Not even the ta- or do not, rather, even the tax collectors do the same. I'm having a hard time reading today. Bear with me. Now, to get just how forceful this saying is, we need to understand that tax collectors were viewed as the scum of society by the Jews. And as being just as bad as the heathen, and perhaps even worse, since they worked for the Romans, who were, and uh, if they were Jews working for the Romans, they were viewed as the worst of sinners because they were also traitors to their people. And, and most tax collectors were also crooks because you could really charge just about what you wanted for taxes as long as the Romans got their cut They didn't much care what you were making people pay. So people enriched themselves really through stealing from their fellow Jews. Um, So they were viewed very harshly. This is why Jesus, when teaching about church discipline at a later time, classed tax collectors and heathen together as examples of wicked, unrepentant sinners. I don't think this verse is in your notes, but it's in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. I want to read it to you so you'll get not only help in understanding what the tax collectors refer to here, but to a textual difference we're going to look at, how it really probably doesn't make a difference. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. The implication being, if he doesn't, maybe you've lost a brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, notice that he's he's talking here about a sin that isn't known unless you tell it to these two other couple of other people or to the church. He's not dealing with a public sin here, right? 
that everybody already knows about or that is done publicly. We, we see in scripture those are handled a little differently. Remember what Paul did in Antioch when he confronted Peter to his face in front of everyone when he undermined the gospel? He didn't go through these steps. He just went right to public confrontation because it was a public sin. That's important to keep remembering because uh, these days uh, people do things publicly online and when you confront them publicly they're saying you're violating Matthew 18. But you're not. So uh, He says, but if they refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Notice, heathen and tax collector, two categories is the same thing, unrepentant sinners. And, and we need to remember, I like to point this out when we look at this passage, because we sometimes forget, there's really only one sin that church discipline is for. unrepentance at any point if this person repents you've gained your brother Jesus said it's the unrepentance whatever the initial sin was it's the unrepentance that leads you to treat them like what unrepentant people if they act like unbelievers through their hard heart and unrepentance you treat them like unbelievers Jesus says you treat them what they're acting like heathens or tax collectors Here in the Sermon on the Mount, then, Jesus clearly sees the kind of love he's been calling for as a distinguishing characteristic of his disciples. He said, even the tax collectors can love people who love them. Even they can manage to, even the most hard-hearted sinner you can think of can manage to love people who love him. We're not aiming at that standard, right? We're trying to be like our Heavenly Father. And so there's a, a, a distinguishing characteristic of Jesus' disciples. It makes us different from the world. We love not just people who love us, but even people who hate us. As John Broadus once pointed out, when we love only those who love us, aren't we in a sense just still loving ourselves? Isn't it just another kind of expanded selfishness? He might be on to something there. Jesus reminds us that such self-centered love brings with it no reward. If you want to go through life loving like tax collectors love, what reward are you going to get from that, he says. But this implies that loving as he commands does bring a reward, doesn't it? But what reward does Jesus have in mind here? Well, once again, the context is going to help us. Context, context, context. Back in verses 11 and 12, remember what Jesus said there. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. When Jesus says, what reward do you have? If you love even like tax collectors love. Instead of the way I'm telling you to love, like your father loves, what reward would you have? Well, you wouldn't have a heavenly reward, right? He's talking about a heavenly reward. Later on in chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus will say this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust 
destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there's heavenly treasure we're laying up in store. It has to somehow fit in with whatever this heavenly reward is. Jesus never wants us to lose sight of our future reward in heaven. It it helps us to see beyond our circumstances in a sin-laden world and to remember that what seems so hard now is worth it in the end. There may be no reward that we can see in this life for loving our our enemies. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a reward. There'll be a heavenly reward. Whether we see any good at all come from it in this life, we're looking to heaven, ultimately. Of course, we can see, often see good come from it in this life that Jesus anticipated in verse 16. Remember? They'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's very rewarding when that happens. (laughs) And that will lead to greater heavenly rewards. Jesus goes on to say, to give another example in verse 47, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Now here, some versions, using some older manuscripts and not the majority reading once again here, have ethnikos here, which can be translated Gentiles or heathen. It's the word that was used when Jesus said in Matthew 18, if someone doesn't repent, you treat them like a heathen or a tax collector. Same word. I think it's likely that Jesus said that here. He used the word heathen. But whether he used tax collectors a second time or the word for heathen really doesn't matter because as we've seen, Jesus views them the same way. And if you look at the parallel kind of teaching in Luke 6, each time Jesus just uses the word sinners. So what he's talking about here is unrepentant sinners. People that don't really even know God. So again, whichever version you're reading, it's not going to make much difference to the overall meaning is what I'm saying. As for the question Jesus asked, we should understand that in that culture, public greetings were a sign of respect. They were a show of, of courtesy. Um, to refuse to greet someone was thus a sign of disrespect. Of course, one could always go out of his way in order to avoid having to greet someone in the first place. Uh, But clearly Jesus doesn't want this to be the attitude of his disciples. We should always be the kind of people who lovingly greet others when we see them, even those who don't like us. That's his final example there of loving like God loves. But even though we jumped ahead when covering the passage, we have to remember that our Lord Jesus actually did end this portion of his teaching with the admonition, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. As we saw hearkening back to his previous concern that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That when people look at you, they see the Father's love through you is the idea. See, in the mind of Jesus, there are only two options. We are either children of God or we're children of the devil in the mind of Jesus. 
Remember what he once said to some Jews who falsely professed to believe in him, but they were disingenuous. They professed to believe in him. They didn't mean it. And he called them out. He said some hard things, and most of them abandoned him. And he said to his disciples, you're going to leave me too? And Jesus famously said, where should we go? You have the words of life. There's no place else to go but to you, right? Of course we're going to stand by you. But Jesus said to these false professors of faith in John 8, beginning verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Why why aren't you understanding the things I'm saying to you? He says, because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Nobody could. Remember when they did bring charges, they had to lie. And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. See, true children of the Father hear the Father. Jesus is basically saying here, who you're listening to shows me who your Father is. The devil or God. And there's no in-between for Jesus. You're one or the other. He says, therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. You claim to be of God, but I know you're not. And I know because you don't hear the truth. You see, whatever people profess, their words and actions will eventually reveal whose children they really are. Their words and actions will eventually show us whether or not they've actually heard and believed the word of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, for example, who wants us to be zealous to demonstrate through our words and actions that we are truly the children of God. Any child of the devil can manage to love those who love him and to hate his enemies. But only a true child of God can genuinely love even his enemies, praying for them and seeking their salvation in all that they do. It's my prayer that we'll continue to rely on the grace of our Heavenly Father here at Emmanuel Baptist Church in order to manifest a family resemblance to him in all that we say and do and in our prayers so that, as Jesus has so powerfully put it, they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven because it just pains our heart 
that people don't love him like they should because we love him so much. And we can't bear the thought that we fail to love like he loves. It breaks our hearts when we do that. And so as Jesus teaches, we daily pray for forgiveness and we keep striving for the mark of being as loving as he is. Let's pray. Holy Father, I, I really tried to wrestle with this text and I probably got pretty deep into some of the weeds at points, and, but I hope what I've taught has been clear to the congregation here. And, and I pray, Lord, that you will just convict us in the ways we need to be convicted. If we're, if we're feeling saddened and convicted that we have not been as loving as we should be, that too is the work of your spirit. That too is a sign of your love for us, correcting us as our heavenly father, disciplining us. Help us to receive that discipline and repent and call out to you, Lord, please help us to love as you love. Please help us to have hearts full of love, your love for others. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, who has not come to know you, it is our prayer that you would do for him or her what you've done for us, those of us who do know you. Open their eyes that they may be see, we pray. Grant your grace to them. Bring them into a saving relationship with you. Help them to trust Jesus and him alone to save them from their sins, giving up all their own efforts and trust in themselves receiving the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life through Christ. And we'll give you the glory, Lord, for what you do, because we know that you alone deserve it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention. You're such good hearers of the word.